Okay, so the world's largest mining operation is ran by fungi. And uh, it's really an interesting statement when you begin to think about that. But in the images you see here on the right is a fungal. I think that that's actually a root system. This is uh, taken with a camera. There's no fancy equipment on the right there. On the left, that's uh, a microscopic image. But on the right, it's a camera image of, and you see some straw and some soil and things. And you see the roots there, and that looks like what is infested or infected. Well, I wouldn't like to use the word infected, but uh, that gives it a negative connotation. It's not really negative, but that's mycorrhizae on those roots. Uh, if you see that, uh, the best place to find mycorrhizae, somebody asked, where can I find mycorrhizae? And, um, you know, you're looking for it commercially in a package. Uh, we mentioned that one place, but uh, next to that, uh, a forest. You go to the forest floor and you look for white stuff like that. You pick it up and you go take it to your garden, and that's essentially mycorrhizae. Uh, what species is in there? I don't know, there's probably several thousand species or several hundreds of uh, spores and everything else inside of there. So what you're going to get, uh, I don't know, but what's going to survive is species that are going to tolerate your soil environment. Um, on the left, we see an image of, uh, I don't remember what this was. I want to say it was gibbosite or mecca or some other type of mineral. But um, either way, you see those holes and it kind of look like worms or lines in the center. And what that is, is that this is a piece of rock. You're looking at it in a microscope, so it's, you know, it's not a big rock like you see outside that you pick up and maybe you'd want to throw, but this, is a, this nonetheless is a mineral, a mineral rock, uh, very small, microscopic, and those darker colorings that you see on there is where fungal hyphae have weathered away at uh, some, of this, uh, some of this rock. Here's another image. This is an electron microscope. So these images that I'm going to show you right now came from, uh, they were actually taken not even a year ago. I want to say that it was February, March of 2017. Um, and this is some of the first imagery to be taken of, uh, of uh, fungal hyphae and the weathering of basalt and a couple other minerals uh, that was collected in the Catalina Mountains in uh, southern Arizona, just outside of Tucson, an area where I'm from, which made me fall in love with it even more. I liked the image just by itself, and then when I was told where it came from, then I really got excited. That was near my hometown. But anyhow, here's a fungal hyphae. That's how tiny these things are. And uh, I want to say that that white bar on the bottom right, right corner uh, symbolizes five uh, micrometers. If I, I'm sorry, yeah, five micrometers or nanometers, micrometers, I want to say is what it was. Uh, and so this is really, really tiny. I mean, you're looking at this, again, with electron microscope, and we're seeing these things. And this is a web uh, of fungal hyphae around a piece of basalt. We look at this image, and what you see, you can hardly see it. Maybe the folks in the back can't see it. But you see something that looks like a worm or something like that, kind of going around the bottom here, and making its way to the top. That's another uh, a weathering of, of basalt. And I think in this particular example, that's actually fungus is actually after phos uh, uh, potassium. It isn't phosphorus, but it it, it'll actually get phosphorus the same way. And this is where a lot of the weathering comes from your parent material, material your rock that is in your soil, especially in the, uh, in the mountain, mountainous regions or anywhere where you have a lot of rock. 
which really, um, I'm going to throw this one in there. I wasn't going to talk about it at first, so I don't have a whole bunch of the slides. But Ellen White talked about uh, soils, and she was shown by uh, essentially Jesus uh, what soil would be productive and what ways to plant uh, fruit trees. And uh, a lot of people ask, how is it that this is, uh, where's the science behind this, essentially? And the sad thing is, is that, and it blows me away so much, but one of the sciences that has, is, is essentially really behind the curve and for a lot of reasons, and some of it is research and some of it is uh, uh, lack of people that are interested in these things, but uh, nonetheless, soil science is one of the sciences that is really just, I mean, way behind the curve when it comes to making discoveries. We just, as a human race, we haven't really put in the effort we need to put in to figure out what's going on in that soil. So here we are in 2017, well over 100 years since Ellen White suggested where things ought to be planted and how they ought to be planted based upon visions that she was shown. And we are now still not even sure how that works. But I have a hunch uh, from the wisdom the Lord has given me uh, uh, to the understanding of soil biology as to what's going on in there. And... Um, I'll talk about that in the other session I have tomorrow on what titled "What Is Soil." Uh, I encourage you to come to that if you would like to know uh, how I make those connections. But here's another image. Same thing. What you see coming up to the side here is a fungal hyphae, and this is the scale of three micrometers. No, 30 micrometers. From one side of the screen to the other side of the screen is 30 micrometers. That's very tiny. And that's a weathering of a, a piece of basalt there. Uh, here's another image, the same thing, very similar. Uh, this time it's 50 micrometers is a field view from one side to the other. But you see again weathering in these rocks. Uh, you see weathering over here in the, uh, or actually I think that's actually, oh, uh, yeah, that is a uh, weathering of, a, uh, of that soil there, or that piece of basalt. I'm sorry, that mineral. Um, here's some more uh, images. This is actual, the kind of milky looking like stuff that you see wrapping this piece of uh, mineral here is, is the fungal hyphae. Wrapping itself around these things and uh, making, making itself, uh, or, or extracting the nutrients that are in there uh, through different uh, exudates that, it's, uh, that it sends out. And this was really exciting because a lot of these types of images had not ever been captured before. Uh, and how this was done is that they took litter bags that, uh, I don't remember the mesh of these litter bags, but they were really tiny. And uh, they put some basalt in it, they put some inoculants in it, or actually I don't think they put any inoculants in it. They just put the basalt inside of these weathered bags, or inside of these soil bags, they buried them, and then they came back a year later, pulled them out. And then, uh, then they took them into the laboratory and they started just shooting a whole bunch of images of what they found. And this was really exciting because it was for the first time in the, for the soil science community where we had seen uh, images and proof of how fungal hyphae can actually weather minerals. Uh, it had always, they had always believed that that's nothing new, but uh, they just didn't have the images to support it. Uh, again, here's another fungal hyphae coming out the side here. And you're looking at really tiny images here this time where, I forget the scale keeps changing. This is 12.8 micrometers. Uh, very, very small, but you can make it out coming here. It goes down and it wraps its way around there. And it, uh, this was basalt, so it was really after potassium. And you have to understand the uh, 
mineral makeup of these, of these minerals in order to understand what nutrients the fungus is after. And there's a lot of different minerals, uh, especially we start getting into granite and other things where you have, uh, you have phosphorus, you have potassium, uh, you have magnesium, you have calcium. I mean, all these different things, all these names uh, that I'm throwing at you, like basalt, uh, they all signify something and mean something in the soil community. So when you think about limestone, you know, we think about lime, but really it's just natural formations of calcium calcium and magnesium carbonate. When you think of dol uh, dolomite, that's uh, you know, uh, same thing. It's a limestone, but it, it's a high magnesium limestone. That's where we get dolomitic lime, uh, the name anyhow. So this is where these names come from. Uh, here's another image, similar thing. Uh, you've got some more hyphae coming out of the side. Um, show you another one. So this is actually one where we have hyphae coming around the corner. And they even started finding some critters that they weren't even sure what it was. And it was amazing because they were looking at things that look like some type of microbiological, multicellular biological life that uh, they've never, you know, never even heard of. So it's interesting what happens when you just take technology like that and you start taking pictures of things in the soil and what you'll come up with. All right, so that wraps up the mycorrhizae and the phosphorus for us. We're going to get into the sulfur cycle now. So this one, uh, this is one that I was hoping we would get time to talk about. Oh boy, I didn't take, keep track of time. We're supposed to stop 5.15. Um, okay. All right, so the sulfur cycle is a lot like the nitrogen cycle in that there is a lot of different um, oxidation states of sulfur. And one of the biggest things with sulfur we, we we know also that there's a lot of different microorganisms that can move sulfur around and change it around to whatever, the, uh, whatever it is that they prefer. And sulfur is oftentimes used uh, in the soil for acidi uh, acidifying, especially your, uh, your alkalinic soils in uh, the West uh, will get applications of elemental sulfur uh, to acidify the soil. Uh, how does that work and how, why you should do that or you should not do that, you have to understand the uh, redox potential and how these organisms will uh, essentially take these elements and pull hydroxides out of the soil leaving hydrogen behind so they're using water and eventually that's what actually uh, produces the hydrogen uh, and the increase in the or sorry the decrease in the pH and the increase in the acid of the soil. Uh, I want to share with you different uh, images of um, the sulfur cycle, here's another image. Actually, I should have probably shared a couple of things more. I like this one because it's more colorful. It's usually easy for people to see things with color, but I wanted to add some other ones that didn't have color, and this is similar to the other image where uh, we're looking at the components of atmospheric sulfur, which can come down in sulfur gas. It can also come down in uh, uh, acid rain if you live in an environment with a lot of uh, manufacturing or burning of different uh, things. It's not as bad as it used to be since they implemented different... Uh, coal burning technologies, but uh, used to be that you had an awful lot of acid rain in certain parts of the country, and what that was really bringing down was uh, sulfuric acid in, in, uh, in through the rain. Uh, so that's, that's one method that you can get sulfur additions into the soil. Um, it can volatilize like nitrogen form into a gas. Um, uh, it can leach through the soil. It will leach. Sulfur is something that will definitely, or sulfate particularly, will definitely move through the soil without any delay. Uh, if that soil is uh, a sandy or somehow it can move moisture, it's waterlogged, you have a lot of water going through your soil, the sulfate will, will definitely move through that soil. It can get into water tables. 
Uh, it can get into streams and rivers and lakes. So again, it's another nutrient that should be managed uh, intelligently. But when you are out in, a, in the west, it's usually not likely that you need to worry about that. It's more of a problem in the east and in the southeast particularly. Uh, sulfate is actually the only form of sulfur the plants can take up. SO, SO4, two negative is what it is, sulfate. That, as far as uh, science knows right now, is the only form of sulfate that uh, plants can take up. When we're talking about your, your plants or your crops being sulfur deficient, it's sulfate that they're looking for. Um, we'll move on to the next image here. It's the same thing uh, in black and white of sulfur cycle. And uh, sulfur and phosphorus, I brought this up in the last presentation, is also responsible for uh, collating uh, orthophosphate. And uh, it, oh, most organisms that uh, move sulfur around are anaerobic organisms. They, they want a waterlogged or some other environment where there's very little oxygen. Um, those types of environments will, will lead to rapid mineralization of sulfur. That's not a nutrient we really need in super high quantities. Uh, our demand for sulfur in, in the soil of our crops is not significantly high uh, in comparison to nitrate or phosphorus. Uh, nitrate really more so than even than phosphorus. Uh, so if we have waterlogged conditions, we can lead to um, H2S gas, right? You guys know what H2S gas, sulfuric, uh, uh, hydrogen sulfide gas, which has that real rotten, rotten egg smell that is associated with uh, putrefaction. Uh, that's an anaerobic, it requires anaerobic environments, usually waterlogged. The, the, the enzyme that is responsible for that, I believe it falls under the uh, disulfur, disulfur, I forget the name, thiobacillus, uh, I'll, I'll bring it up later, I forget the name, there's too many names, I'm sorry. Uh, let's see, and again, uh, I bring back the issue of having, uh, that you should probably shoot for quantities of sulfur. Um, this is suggested, uh, Hmm. I can't remember the name of the book off the top of my head, but uh, Michael Astero, right? Um, uh, I forget the name of the book. It's, uh, I'm sure it's here probably for sale. The Ideal Soil, the Ideal Soil Handbook. Thank you. He recommends uh, one-third, uh, uh, that sulfur should be one-third of phosphorus. And I saw it somewhere else, too, in the literature. I, I want to say that it was from either Charles Walters or uh, Neil Kinsey or one of those guys. I saw somewhere similar uh, uh, mathematics with sulfur. And again, some of those reasons are, uh, a lot of those reasons, I personally believe, though th those books don't talk about it, is because of the microorganisms in the soil and how they behave with different concentrations of sulfur and phosphorus. Uh, here is the different oxidation states of sulfur. Uh, sulfur is, has more even than uh, calcium, more, uh, I'm sorry, than nitrogen, has more oxidation states than nitrogen. And what this means is that every single time you want to change sulfur, its character from one type to another, it, it requires some sort of, uh, of a biological activity. So sulfur can be anywhere from negative two to a plus six, depending on what oxidation state uh, it's in. Uh, and it could be negative two um, in the form of sulfide, it could be in polysulfide, it can be in sulf uh, elemental sulfur, which is the kind that you usually add to a soil when you are uh, desiring to acidify a soil, and it's the only type that I know of, that, uh, well, with the exception of sulfide and polysulfide, but you don't usually ever add those to the soil. I don't know where you would get that from, but, it, but you would find them in uh, the environment. But sulfur, in the form of elemental sulfur, is uh, the only form which is known to really actually acidify, because the other ones, the oxidation state, is already, uh, it's already too low, and there, uh, there, there isn't really anything for it to take there. Uh, so we're not gonna see um, acidification with those. So 
not going to, uh, and essentially you're not going to acidify your soil by adding calcium sulfate, right? So you're adding sulfur, correct? Yes, but you're not going to see a pH a change by adding calcium sulfate. Uh, that's why it's suggested that you use gypsum instead of a, a calcium carbonate. Another example is copper sulfate or uh, any other of the sulfate, uh, iron sulfate or uh, magnesium sulfate, which is essentially Epsom salt. These, these products will not drastically change your pH. Uh, you'll see little to no pH in, uh, in the change of, uh, in, when you use these nutrients. Um, so then we see hyposulfate, uh, we see sulfite, we see thiosulfate, we see dithionate, uh, uh, thionate, uh, tetrathionate, pentathionate, and sulfate. Uh, sulfate, again, all the way at the bottom, a uh, plus six oxidation state, is the only one the plants really want. So that's a lot of different flavors for sulfate, for sulfur, I'm sorry. And it's entirely up to soil organisms to, uh, uh, to uh, work on this. So my, uh, soil microorganisms drive the sulfur cycle, hence sulfur undergoes many microbial-mediated transformations in soil. An awful lot. Oxidation and reduction reactions, mineralization, immobilization, volatilization reactions. These terminologies that apply to nitrogen apply to sulfur as well. So oxidation is one thing, reduction is another thing. You're doing the same thing here as, or you have the potential to do these with microorganisms. Mineralization is making it available to the plant. Immobilization is locking it up in a form that is not available to the plant. Volatilization is turning it into a gas like H2S, uh, which it'll escape the soil profile, it'll leave into the atmosphere, and will be gone. Uh, here's another, uh, what was this, I'm sorry. Total sulfur and ester sulfate content of selected microorganisms grown in cultures. So we're looking at the amount of sulfur that is actually in different microorganisms that were cultured. Um, so I guess this is not quite as important for me to talk about. The point I was really trying to make here is how much sulfur uh, microorganisms will take and... Uh, um, and what they do with it, uh, it's, it's a spreadsheet that you can you know, take consideration when uh, contemplating whether or not to add these inoculants to your soil or sulfur inoculants. So here is uh, something a little more um, interesting. Sulfur using bacteria occurring in soil and aquatic habitats. So aquatic habitats is where we tend to find the majority of your uh, um, uh, anaerobic uh, sulfur bacteria, uh, disulfofibrio, that was a species that I was trying to remember, is uh, one that is particularly responsible for the production of uh, hydrogen, uh, hydrogen uh, sulfide. And uh, you have a whole list of different ones in here as far as which ones are electron acceptors, electron donors, how electrons are moved through the soil. A lot of this stuff really goes back to chemistry and which organisms we're going to move that around and, and how they're going to move that around. So it's really... Uh, Real interesting things to note when you're dealing with, uh, dealing with these species. Let's see here. Uh, now you have a f several, you know, electron doning. This is another spreadsheet as well. Uh, Acidithiobacillus, uh, etc. You have a whole bunch of different species here and the pH which they like to operate in. I put this out there for you. You can see really how your hydrogen sulfide uh, gases are usually very acidic. So that's why you kind of find them in the uh, manure pile, the compost sewer gas. That's why this is essentially sewer gases because it requires those acids. And it's really interesting to know that sewer gas uh, or the organisms that essentially produce sewer gas that are breaking down the, that uh, effluent uh, prefer a high pH. Uh, so it's uh, interesting to note that uh, how do you get such a high pH in your effluent? 
what's coming out the, the tailpipe of folks, and in general, when we talk about the town as a whole, uh, it's relatively acid. So I think that that species and that, that those things wouldn't smell quite bad, and you wouldn't have so much so, uh, uh, sewer gas if uh, there was a change in the diet. But that's a whole other subject by itself. But you start to see a lot of these things as you start to see what organisms are really in uh, in the environments that we produce that we manipulate through uh, human management. Um, again, we're starting to really get out of ag and get into a lot of different other things, but when you get into soil biology, you pretty much get into every discipline out there because everybody somehow eventually uses something. The medical disciplines use, you know, microorganisms to get your, uh, um, uh, what do you call it, antibiotics out of them, uh, different nutrients. Uh, when you go buy your probiotics, uh, you go and you buy those bottles of probiotics, it's predominantly acidophilus. Um, Lactobacillus acidophilus, which is just by knowing that it's lactobacillus, you know that it's predominantly lacti lacti lactic acids and uh, dairy products that they actually metabolize. So if you're a vegan and you're consuming an awful lot of acidophilus as a probiotic, there's not a tremendous amount of things that it's going to do for you because you don't consume dairy. So think about you know, what organisms you're putting in your digestive system and what diet you're on. So if you really want to change the organisms in your digestive system, you change your diet first, just like the soil. You want to change the organisms in the soil, you got to change what you're putting in the soil and how you're dealing with the soil. It's, it, it's all environmentally regulated. You see all of these organisms will manage sulfur, but some of them want pHs of 2.2, some of them want 3.0, some of them want 6.6, .6, some of them want 7, 6.9, 7 again, 8.4. It's all over the board. So you can see how just changing and manipulating your environment changes what species are going to be there. What's going to thrive and what's going to die? Very simple. Um, I, didn't, I didn't have an awful lot prepared for the sulfur, uh, um, the last presentation, because I didn't think that we were going to get this far into it. Uh, so we still, have, we still have 30 minutes for this last presentation. And I know a lot of you guys have a lot of questions, and I keep putting you guys off. I, I see hands coming up, and I did not, an I did not answer, ask those questions because we were asked to wait till the end. So if you. Uh, I'd like to reserve this last uh, 30 minutes for you guys to ask me any questions while I'm here. The room is not quite as crowded as it used to be, so I think we can probably get to more people. Well, I'll tell you what, I'll ask her question first, just because she was raising her hands for like 20 minutes now. <laughs> um, the question I have is the sulfur. What is, I'm wondering if that would also work with our plants. What is DSMO? DMSO or DMSO? Huh, okay. I'm not familiar with that product, so I'm not sure how to answer that question. I'm sorry. Um, I wish I had an answer for that question. Um, okay, there was a question up front here. Okay, um, how do I calculate how much sulfur? Okay, the question was how do I calculate how to lower my pH? Okay. We've got to do some math, so we're going to switch subjects here. This thing's kind of dirty. So what we know is that for every element of sulfur we put in the ground, and we're using elemental sulfur, which is, uh, I believe it's eight if I'm not mistaken. So what happens, elemental sulfur is sulfur with, ah, that can't be eight, I think it's five. It's sulfur with uh, sulfur, uh, several sulfurs bond, bonded to it. When we put sulfur in the ground, uh, it's, it's actually 100% a metabolic process. So we need to have... Uh, we, it's not going to be right away. Uh, you're going to have to wait for that, uh, those microorganisms to metabolize and break down that sulfur. And what they will ultimately turn it to, they'll add water, and it will become uh, sulfate. 
which is SO4 uh, plus uh, some hydrogens. And I, let me think, I'm trying to think in SO4, yes. So we take out, and it's actually two, four. No, it's, uh, I remember there was two. I, I don't have all that in front of me, but what I do remember is that for every element of sulfur, I don't remember the entire stoichiometric, uh, stoichiometry for this uh, reaction, but what I do remember is that each element of sulfur leads to uh, two uh, elements of hydrogen. So what you would do is you figure out, well, what is my hydrogen ion concentration that I want in the soil? And then, uh, or vice versa, you figure out how much elemental sulfur am I putting down? And then you can say, well, I have this many elements of sulfur uh, by weight. So we'll say that you did 100 pounds. Uh, or 100, we'll just say 100 pounds per the uh, acre. And uh, you figure out what the atomic mass of sulfur is, you divide that by 100 pounds, and then uh, they'll tell you how many moles of sulfur you're putting into the ground. You multiply that by two, that's how many moles of hydrogen ion you'll have in the ground, and that's how you're going to push your hydrogen. Um, it's a lot of math and some chemistry, but um, I can show it for you later. I, I, I break it down and make it a little easier for you, hopefully. But uh, essentially, that's how it works. And this is a, a process that is going to be uh, moved in that direction microbially. It's not going to happen just naturally. Is there like a safe upper limit uh, to put on each? Uh, now, the issue that you do want to take in mind is that you are usually, if you're trying to lower your pH, that means you're going to be in an alkalinic soil, uh, which most likely means that it's a low precipitation soil which means that you're not going to lose things through leaching unless you're really, really just flooding a, lot, a ton of water on there. Um, another thing I would also want to add is that the microorganism that is responsible for this uh, process really prefers uh, uh, a waterlogged environment. Well, not necessarily waterlogged, but a moist environment. So you do need to uh, water it rather thoroughly if you're really looking for that to happen in any type of, of uh, accelerated rate. Uh, but uh, the safe, again, you get to the point, well, Okay, great. Now we can get our pH where we want it, maybe lowered. Um, but what's going to happen is if you add too much sulfur, your sulfur is going to get too high. And you can get in trouble of having too much sulfur in the soil. That's another thing I like to add. When we're, when we're dealing with alkalinic soils, you're going to have a lot of these cations in excess. And how do you get them out of there is a challenge. Uh, so a lot of folks turn to sulfur. But again, for a lot of reasons, like he said, if you try to go in there and you just keep adding salts, most of those salts are sulfur-based. Um, it depends, again, I mean, there's a lot, there's no straight answer. Um, nobody can just come and just, I can't give an answer to everybody that's going to apply everywhere, but uh, again, you go into complexities in the literature. Now, when we're talking about pH, we're talking strictly the concentration of hydrogen. Uh, when you start talking about uh, how that is affecting uh, soils. Now, what Whitmar was going and talking about calcium, uh, magnesium, and sodium particularly, uh, as well as potassium, these, uh, these salts in the soil will have a tendency to, to, to force hydroxides, produce hydroxides. In the, and when they do that, um, that essentially increases your pH by, uh, incre by increasing the concentration of hydroxides in the soil. Uh, yeah, you can, get, you can bring that down with sulfur. You can do that. It'll work. Uh, but that's not really solving the problem. The problem is that you have too many salts in there. Um, uh, water, but that's the problem, there's no water. That's why they're there to begin with. So it gets to be in this real, 
this real tough challenge. So people just, the only thing that, that is out there right now is balance your soil chemistry and then add sulfur. But then if you add too much sulfur, then you get too much sulfur in your soil and you gotta deal with those effects. And I'm not 100% sure, but um, I've never really dealt with a grower that had too much sulfur and that's not usually a problem and people don't do much research in it because sulfate moves to the soil profile. So most of the country is getting enough precipitation to move sulfur or sulfate more specifically out of the soil profile. But when we start dealing with uh, Western uh, uh, um, arid environments, uh, then it, it gets complicated. It gets real complicated. And you're asking questions that everybody wants to know the answer to, but nobody really has. Um, go ahead. Uh, okay. Um, the other question is adding organic matter. And yes, there's, there's more than one ways to skin this cat. Every time you got roots in the ground, you, they're, they're, they're pushing hydrogen ions out, to pull nutrients out. Um, so yeah, just growing a crop would, would help with time, but it would take a long time to ever see a significant change. Adding compost will add, uh, will, will definitely add a lot of organic acids. So you'll see pH changes with compost, but it's not going to be really significant. And you're going to be adding an awful lot of phosphorus too. So it's kind of a, it's kind of a challenge. I mean, any way you look at it, man, it, you're, you're fighting an uphill battle. And we've got to make decisions that are going to work best for you. It's why I say the answer is depends. It depends on a lot of things. And you've got to make an intelligent decision based off of what exactly is going on with your soil. Okay, you could use humic or fulvic acids, which are essentially is just humus broken down. Um, the only challenge I see with that is that it would get expensive real quick, um, real quick. If you're trying to use that to adjust your pH, you could use citric acid, you could use ascorbic acid, you know, but again, then you, you, you really, I, I don't know what's gonna happen with you if you start forming too much, uh, um, say, uh, calcium citrate or magnesium citrate or whatever other anion, uh, cations you have in there, you're going to form these. And I don't know how that will react with time. So that's still yet to really be understood. I don't know anybody that has really played around with this. I don't know if you have anybody in, uh, in your mind that you've experienced. You could remove cations with sulfur. The problem is when you get in a high pH situation like that. What about trying to change the structure so, or something? So here's the thing. Um, sodium is a very small element. When sodium dominates the clay colloids, what you're looking at in this image is a whole bunch of clay. So you have nutrients in between these fine layers that you see there. And you've heard this said before, I think, and I'll say it again, that calcium, helps, the calcium and aluminum help to flocculate the soil while sodium and potassium um, tend to make it stick together. The reason why is because when those sodium, those elements of sodium, as smaller as they are, come in between these uh, colloid plates, they bring the plates closer together, uh, a neighboring plates. Um, so there's, I don't think I have the other image, so I won't turn to the other one. When you bring in aluminum, which we don't want in excessive amounts, uh, but we do want calcium, uh, it, it'll actually open these plates up and separate them. Uh, you see how some of these over here are much more separated than the ones stacked over here. Uh, essentially, the difference here is what's inside those clay colloids. And I don't know exactly what it is, but I can guarantee you it's going to be bigger molecules. You know, copper, cobalt, uh, iron, um, calcium, things like that would come inside of here. And because they're bigger, ele those elements have a bigger radius, uh, since there's, no, there's more neutrons, protons, and electrons in those elements, it's going to be a bigger element. So that's what really changes it. This is how small these things are. And this is where you see these, 
these things scientifically speaking. So when uh, you, you have an awful lot of sodium, which happens with sodic soils, now you can have a uh, you can have an alkali soil and not have it be sodic, but sodic means that you have, uh, or say, uh, I'm sorry, you can have a saline soil and not have it sodic, uh, which means sodic means that you have a lot of sodium, and saline means that you have a lot of salts. So you can have both or you can have one. Um, so if you're dealing with a soil that has a lot of sodium in particular in it, getting that sodium out is going to really uh, improve your, your soil structure by changing the way the, the uh, colloids uh, actually stick to each other. Um, okay, there was another question, but I, I saw so many hands come up. I think it was uh, this gentleman. Oh, okay. Um, let's see, I'll get out of this. So, okay, this is what I'll do. I'll take you to the uh, ad, uh, ad, right? uh, just ag.org. I don't know how fast my internet's working, but we'll give it a try. Hmm? Okay, I'm sorry. Let me put this down. Okay, so you go to Adventist Ag. That's AdventistAG.org. You go to the conference, and then you go to... Oh, I'm sorry. So then you go to... You go to... Uh, you'll be at AdventistAg.com. You go to conference 2000... Whoa. I'm sorry, org. Uh, 2018... Man, let me see what I can do about that. Anyhow, when you get to it, you'll see a screen like this. And um, I don't really know how to make it smaller. Here we go. You'll see a drive with all this stuff inside of there. And you have all my PowerPoints in here for this presentation and the ones I'll be doing on uh, Thursday and Friday. But you have these files right here. Um, these are PDF files of uh, textbooks that you can read. And again, that's where I talked about some of the literature that you read. You have uh, this book down here. Well, both of these books are college textbooks that I took this out of for soil science. So you can um, you know, look at those all you like, read what's there. I encourage you to do so. Um, the information that is in here might overwhelm you. If you're new to this, you're probably going to have to read it two or three times to understand what it's saying. But um, it's all there. Uh, and I, got, uh, I also have uh, some other books and other resources for some of the other classes. I have the image of the nitrogen cycle, I got cover crops information, crop rotation information, and then I have the uh, PDFs from the PowerPoints that I've been showing you guys throughout this entire thing, so if you want to pull those up, you can. Um, and then I got the presentations for the other one. I don't have one for cover crops, I don't really have a PowerPoint for cover crops, I was going to just talk about resources for cover crops mostly, and how you can educate yourself with what to use, when to use it, and how to use it, and why. So I don't have any PowerPoints for that presentation. <laughs> Fast guns everywhere. <laughs> well, question over there. We still got quite. A, okay, we still got about uh, 15 minutes. Go ahead. Okay, micronized calcium carbonate is pretty expensive. It's like, okay, the question is: Is micronized calcium carbonate a, uh, a good type of calcium to put in the soil? And the thing is, that calcium. The only reason why I brought that up is because it's a rapid availability of calcium. But it's pricey. You're paying for that. It's, uh, it's calcium carbonate, pure calcium carbonate that has been broken down to a fine mesh, a 200 mesh. And that is, um, that's going to be pricey. You're paying, I've seen about $9 a bag for it for 40 pounds versus, you know, 4 bucks for your regular ag li uh, lime. So you're going to pay for it. You don't really have to use that. Uh, just uh, uh, high calcium lime. 
high calcium limestone. Um, you only really want to use the micronized kind if you need that, that calcium r available right away. Go ahead. Yeah, you know, it just the process Not really, no. Uh, that stuff is done with uh, very serious machinery. You're taking, you know, big stones and you're, I mean, you're talking stones the size of a house and then they break them down and throw them in a truck, bring it in. You know, this is all done at a quarry and then they break it down into smaller and smaller pieces and how small you want it broken down is what's going to dictate how much you're going to pay for it and how quickly it'll become available. I don't have the, I wish I had to put the chapter in here on liming, but it has a graph that shows your fine mesh of lime and, you know, when you can expect it to become a uh, plant available. So something that can go through 200 mesh, which is like your micronized calcium carbonate, um, you can expect most of that calcium to be consumed in one year, or at least to be consumed in the first year to have reacted. So it would have reacted with something. Uh, your coarse, uh, you know, 80 mesh, 100, 100 mesh limes, could be like uh, uh, Whitmar said, it could be 20 years, it could be 10 years, depending on how acidic your soil is uh, for that calcium to become available. Because you're talking about now particles, of, just like rocks. Uh, that have to weather, and it takes time for that to happen. This, that's why when you use those ag limes, sometimes you don't get the pH adjustments that, or the p changes in pH that you would expect or the changes in the percent base saturation of calcium that you're looking for uh, because that lime is essentially still a rock inside your soil after the first year or so. So it does take time, um, which is, again, why sometimes you read in literature that Albrecht doesn't work. Um, um, this is crazy. Uh, I, at the universities, we were told Albrecht doesn't work. Don't use it. Get out of the universities. You go to the farms, and all these farms are using Albrecht. <laughs> I walk in there, and these aren't even Adventists. These are people from the world, and they tell us, hey, you know, they told me at the university, the professor so-and-so said it doesn't work. Don't use it. But I use it, and it works great. So, yeah, so if you're going to, if you want to, um, okay, so here is, I managed to get to the screen. Uh, you get to about the middle of this, of the, uh, this webpage here. Uh, if you want the direct link, it's www.adventistag.org forward slash conferences. And then about the middle of this webpage, you see Michael Rocky Treviso, Google Drive link. I'm going to leave that up there for a while. So if you don't, you know, if you don't get it right now, when you go home, it'll, it should still be there for you to access anything you want. Um, okay, so I guess we got just a few more minutes. We can wrap this up. Uh, a couple last-minute questions. Uh, if there's any more last-minute questions, up. Okay. Yeah, I didn't really get into that. I was more talking about biology. But what I would say is that what mycorrhizae is going to make available to the crop is one parent material. So understanding what your parent material is. Because the weathering of those rocks is what's going to dictate the chemistry uh, in that soil. Uh, what you're going to do is come around and try to change that chemistry with additions of different amendments like lime and other things. Uh, second is trying to access things that are not immediately plant available. Like I spoke, I, sh I showed uh, all the pictures of the uh, different forms of phosphor uh, calcium phosphate and other cation uh, forms of phosphorus that can form in the soil when you add too much phosphorus. Those things are made available as well. Uh, let's see. Uh, again, so yeah, that's really up to what's there. You know, if mycorrhizae is not going to create nutrients that are not there. Uh, so you got to really look at what is the parent material composed of, what type of mineralogy is in it, um, and if it's got what what you're you know what you need, then you can definitely get that. And um, uh, another thing that I personally believe is that um, when the Lord destroyed this planet, uh, before He destroyed it, that 
the soil was properly balanced. But uh, when you take a bunch of soil and you saturate it or you fill it with water and you shake it around and then you put it back on the shelf, different things settle at different times and those things are going to be composed, or those uh, minerals are going to have different mineralogy and different uh, uh, elements inside of it. So what I see in this world when I look at all the different layers and different rocks, what I see is that after the flood, part of what God did to reduce the lifespan of man was to change the chemistry of the soil. Uh, he did this by mixing it up and forming all these rocks and they settled in different places and they all have different mineralogies and different minerals inside of them at different, uh, at different uh, rates of each mineral. So everywhere you go, you're finding something almost completely different. So what biology can do is make what's there available to you, but what it can't do is make available things that aren't there. The best resources to learn the mineralogy of your parent material is to go to Web Soil Survey. Um, that's a website that's ran by the USDA National uh, Conservation Resources Service. Uh, you go there, uh, you put in your address for where you are, and you ask for a report. Uh, I mean, I, I could almost spend a whole hour just talking about Web Soil Survey, but all the soils in this country have been mapped. And uh, what material is there can be, or what parent material is there, what type of rocks you can expect to find there. Uh, web soil survey will present that to you because uh, that, a lot of that stuff has already been mapped. Um, that's just going to tell you, again, you need to know what those rocks are. So then you have to figure out, well, what is it? Is it meccas? Is it uh, potassium feldspars? What, what is it? Um, you know, and so you find out what's there and then you go looking for explanations as to what type, you know, what is basalt and what mineralogy composes basalt. And then when you know what that is, well, then you know what parent, your parent material is and what, and what you can expect to, uh, uh, to weather in that soil. Web Soil Survey. Oh, I don't know. It's dot Google Web Soil Survey, and <laughs> it's the first link that comes up. And uh, I think it's a dot gov, but I don't remember. I, I never type in the web address. I always just go Google Web Soil Survey. I go to the first link, and then you launch the interactive map, which is a big green button right there on the main screen. You click on that, and it sends you off to Soil Survey. You look up your property and you find, they have, they have a lot of information on your, on your land there and you can find out a lot of stuff. Uh, the challenge is understanding some of the vocabulary and, uh, and understanding how to navigate through the website. That's more of a challenge. No, it's not, but uh, it, it's not, it's semi-user friendly. You still got to kind of know what some of those things mean. Uh, oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, I'll, I'll, yeah. Everybody's getting away from the paperwork now, but what you can do is you can go to your local USDA or NRCS office and uh, ask them, hey, look, I live at such a place. Can you, uh, I don't know how to use this website. Can you maybe spit some of this information out for me and uh, they'll ask, tell them what you're looking for and they'll, they'll tell you. And they could probably find it in a few minutes. And um, sometimes they have people in there, uh, volunteers and other things like that working in there but uh, I can't make any promises as to who's going to be in there when you get there. They're having a hard time sometimes finding soil scientists, but uh, anyhow, it's, a, it's another resource. Uh, I guess one, I think, yeah, we'll, we'll take a, one more question here. Go ahead. Okay, so well, the question is, can we safely assume that microorganisms are so powerful that they can overcome some of the negative effects of GMOs? Uh, for me, the biggest negative effect for GMOs is not the actual GMO itself. 
but it's the agricultural practices that it encourages. That's really the challenge. Uh, so if you're going to use soybean meals or whatever and they've been sprayed with glyphosate and other herbicides and pesticides, uh, yeah, there are microorganisms that can do that, uh, that can metabolize and, and break down those uh, uh, molecules, but uh, the challenge is, is that uh, they're probably in relatively low concentrations in your soil and it would take some time for them to build up into a level uh, that would be really respectable. I know of a few folks that are working on trying to really isolate and, uh, and um, oh, uh, uh, ma essentially mass produce those organisms so that they can try to turn some soils around that have been seriously damaged by glyphosate. But as far as I know, there's no products available for purchasing right now. Um, that may not be true as I speak. This, that could already be something out there, but I know that a lot of effort has gone into making that product. Uh, however, in the in-between time, you're going to be putting a lot of stuff down that you don't really know what's going to happen to it because we don't, you don't really know what organisms are there and in what concentration. So um, yes and no. <laughs> yes and no is the answer to that question. Um, Uh, you know, I think there's a few labs out there that can do that, but I've never personally done that. Um, if you're purchasing soybean meal and you're concerned about it, really the best thing to do is figure out the source and um, figure out whether or not they're using that. And the answer is probably yes, unfortunately. Um, you can almost be, I mean, what, 98% or so of the soybean grown in this country? It may even be more than that by now, but uh, yeah, it's a, it's a Roundup Ready soybean. So to find the, soy, the place that, that grows soybeans and it would make, uh, uh, would make that uh, soy, uh, the meal available for you, at a soybean meal available for you without glyphosate, I, I don't know the source. Um, does anybody else? Oh, wow. Is that through cross-pollination? Okay, yeah, so you were saying a lot of the GMOs, or, or even organic, G, uh, sorry, a lot of organic soybean is, that is being tested for uh, the genetics of uh, Roundup Ready uh, soybeans is turning out to be contaminated with some of those genes. And the reason, of course, would be uh, cross-pollination. Um, Wouldn't that apply to like uh, cottonseed meal and uh, you know, oh, okay. things, you know, uh, alfalfa? Yeah, yeah, there's, there are some Roundup Ready alfalfas out there, but like I shared with you earlier, uh, some of the folks I've talked to that have grown alfalfa, and I think we're past our time, but I'll just make this last statement. Uh, some of the folks that have grown uh, uh, Roundup Ready alfalfa have had, uh, can't seem to get uh, the yields they used to get with some of the other alfalfas now. They don't have the weeds, which is nice, uh, I guess, but uh, the tonnage the, of, of hay, the amount of bales they used to get is down. And some of the reasons why I, I personally believe that's possible when you use that and even with soybean as well, if you're growing it with inoculated, uh, uh, the right inoculated rhizomes in there, is that uh, the way that uh, glyphosate works to chelate certain uh, minerals. And if you're, if you're locking up iron and, and molybdenate and, and your soil, you're not going to be able to uh, get uh, nitrogenase to fix nitrogen the way it should because of the uh, cofactors that I mentioned earlier. Uh, so if you're locking up those minerals with things like glyphosate, you're going to see some reduction in your uh, nitrogen fixation of those legumes which is going to affect your yield, but you may not see it quite as readily in soybeans because you're after the bean, while alfalfa, you're after the actual uh, the plant. So I think it's probably more of a problem with alfalfa than it is with soybeans. And that's for hay production. Okay, so we're going to wrap it up there. If you'd like to ask some questions, um, 
Uh, I guess you can see me in dinner or uh, sometime throughout the uh, convention. I, I thank you for uh, hanging out to the end. I know it was tough for some of you, but I appreciate it. I hope that you've enjoyed it, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll talk some more. Thank you. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.